don't hit that skip button because I have huge news for you. The Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt lives. It is here. It is available to purchase. Oh, yes, I'm not kidding. We finally got our Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt out, and it's amazing. It is printed by the same company that prints for Cavity Colors and Fright Rags, which if you're a hardcore horror fan who buys a lot of horror t-shirts, I know I do, you know that's the very best and highest quality because we couldn't do anything less for our fans. It's an amazing full-color design designed by Jason Ragosta. It's very cool. It features a zombified myself, a zombified Damon, and it looks just like an awesome horror shirt because that's what we want because we're horror fans too. So we wanted to make a t-shirt that you could really sink your teeth into. Go to rewindoftheLivingDead.bigcartel.com. Again, that's rewindoftheLivingDead.bigcartel.com to get your t-shirt today. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. In 1971, William Peter Blatty released a book based loosely upon a supposed real-life exorcism that took place years earlier, but the novel struggled to find success until he appeared on a talk show to debate whether or not the devil actually existed. Sales of the book immediately skyrocketed, and Blatty began adapting his work into a screenplay after previously collaborating on several films with director Blake Edwards. Blatty insisted that he remain a producer on the film adaptation, especially after his script so closely followed the story from his book. That paid off when he played a role in hiring William Friedkin as the director, following his success with The French Connection. Casting for the film wasn't easy either, with several roles changing just as production was about to begin, but the choices made by Blatty, Friedkin, and the studio paid off, when the film was released, it became a smash hit that ultimately earned 10 Academy Award nominations. The movie centers around a single mother who desperately searches for help when her only daughter begins exhibiting strange and bizarre behavior as if she's been possessed. Excellent day for an exorcism. episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we travel back to 1973 and let the power of Christ compel you as we review the classic film, The Exorcist. I'm Father Damon Martin. <laughs> Damon, uh, I'm Patrick Garrett, by the way. I wanted so bad to go, and I'm sucking cocks in hell. <laughs> so badly, I just wanted to start with that. <laughs> I, just, I was like, that might be too much. That yeah. might be too far. I think it might be too far for me to call myself Father Damon Martin. That might be a bridge too far, too. 
Yeah, that's also dark and nasty. And don't associate yourself with the Catholic Church. That may be worse than sucking cocks in hell. (laughs) What a a way to start the episode. Good Lord. Well, I guess that's what happens. That's what happens when you when you get down with the exorcist, the original exorcist, the most infamous horror film, I think of all time. I think it's fair to say that this is probably the most infamous horror film of all time because it goes hard. It really does in its own weird way, by the way. And we're going to get into all of that in a minute, Damon. Um, But let's be honest. I think you and I and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was thinking about this earlier today. As a small, small child, without ever seeing this movie, much like Freddy and Jason, um, I knew about The Exorcist. It was already built into the world that I was born into. My older siblings, uh, you know, they would they would say little quotes from the movie. Not not that one in particular, but, (laughs) you know, they like, you know, uh, the power of Christ compels you. Like we hear it all the time in the house and. I think one of the earliest things I can think of that terrified me in cinema history is Reagan's face that, 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 uh, that possessed greenish scratched up face is, is probably the first thing that I was truly terrified really more so than Freddie, which, you know, intrigued me and Jason, which I thought was cool this was the first thing where I was like, I'm just scared of that. And I never even experienced it. I'm talking little, little Patrick, little is six, seven year old Patrick knew about this. And I think about like my, my, I got an eight year old son and a six year old son. They like horror. We watched just the cold open of Halloween 2018 tonight as of this recording. And they loved it, but I know they couldn't handle anything farther, but yet seven year old me, had that image of Reagan in my head without ever having to see the movie and being absolutely terrified. Were you, were you somewhere in there? Yeah. I would say when I was a little kid, cause these were, you know, this movie was out before I was born, obviously um, two movies in particular I heard about as a kid that freaked me out just because of the stories I heard about them. One was the exorcist and the other was jaws. Those yes. are the two films I heard about so much as a kid. And I knew about them. I had never seen them but I heard about them. Everyone said the exorcist and jaws will terrify you in ways you've never been terrified before. Mm-hmm. All these years later. And I've seen both movies. I would say jaws is probably one of my top three films of all time. I have a poster hanging out in my living room right now. And I have a giant, uh, giant, uh, poster of Quint hanging right next to me. You can't see it, but it's right next to me. <laughs> uh, jaws is one of my all time favorites. The exorcist also up there lived up to the hype 100 i'm with you the scene that i always heard about when i was a kid that that two scenes in particular that, that i heard about that freaked me out one was the head twisting scene and yep. two was the vomit with the pea soup oh yeah always heard that was about just those in scenes. the zeitgeist yeah it was just out there and yeah like it was it freaked me out and I, I know I've said this on the show before, Patrick, and again, I'm not, I'm just laying it out so people understand. I'm not religious. Uh, I'm an atheist. I'm not saying that to offend any of the religious folks out there. You can believe whatever you want to believe. But for whatever reason, I always have had a weird, like, fun fascination with exorcism in films like this. I've said it before. Um, I always enjoy these films. I don't know maybe if it's just that I can enjoy the fiction of it. 
and I accept it as fiction. Maybe some other people don't. And again, I'm not trying to get into that debate. But I've always enjoyed these films. And when I was a kid, I do remember this. And this was one of those films. I remember, like, when I was a little kid and I got into horror, and I told you, I saw Nightmare on Elm Street way, way too young. I saw Nightmare on Elm Street 2 or 3 in the theater when I was a little, little kid. I had no, I have no idea how the theater people let me in to see that movie. But I saw that movie when I was a little kid. I had no business being in there. But I remember The Exorcist was one of those movies, even before I saw it, it freaked me out so bad, I didn't see it right away. Because I yeah. heard so many stories about it. Even as a little kid, it was like it scared me away from seeing it. And I don't, do you remember mm-hmm. how old you were when you actually watched it? No, it's fuzzy. And it's like, it's teens. I know it's somewhere in my teens, like 15 or something, because it was like banned in my house. My mom is a very serious Catholic. And if you know anything about the history of this film, the Catholic church was like, absolutely. This is like the worst movie of all time. There would be worse movies out there that would actually make the Catholic church look bad, but they were just like, it's demonic. Like it's purely a a movie about demons and, and it's too close to reality. So you it's, it's banned. And my mom is one of those people who's like, fuck that movie. Maybe I'm quoting her by saying, fuck that movie. Like she did not allow that movie to happen in our house. And it wasn't a movie that's like easily available. It was like when I was a kid, like I probably saw like Halloween and Friday the 13th and, and Nightmare on Elm Street just because we had a hot box at home. Like I saw Jaws on HBO on my, on the old hot box. Like I, the, those movies were readily available at all times. The Exorcist, like you'd kind of have to catch it. I remember it'd be, sometimes it'd be on like, either like TNT or TBS or one of those, like they'd play it. But you know how, like in the old days of TV, before there was any streaming or anything, if a movie was cut down for TV, it actually ended up making the movie longer. The movie would be like three hours long if it was playing on, on like a TNT or a TBS. And it's also edited for television. And so you'd watch it and it felt like a big choppy mess. So I don't know when I fully like dug into it, but I remember when I finally did, I was like, this movie's fucked up. Like it's, it's fucked up in a really weird way. Um, but, and, and I can't wait to really get into like, it's been years since I've really digested it. And now we're sitting and talking about it here. I have a completely different feeling about the movie now than the first time I ever saw it. Let me, before we get into our current feelings, let me just say this. I remember seeing it once when I was still relatively young. I was probably 12 or 13 at the time because I used to have a video store right across the street from where I grew up. And I used to go over there and rent movies all the time. And they had a horror section. And we've talked about this before. It was the old 80s horror section where you would just rent things by the cover. Like, you would see a cover of a movie and be like, ooh, that looks cool. And you'd rent it. And I remember, because yeah. I, I remember I used to go over there at least once every couple of months. I'd rent Monster Squad, which was one of my all-time favorite movies. I'd have to rent that every couple of months just because I loved it. And I remember mm-hmm. the woman who worked there was the mother of a guy I went to school with. And she was just like, you know, she would always try to suggest things to me. Like, have you seen this? Have you seen that? Knowing I was a massive horror fan. And at one point she was like, have you seen The Exorcist? And I was like, no. And it was one of those ones that was almost like off limits by my standard. Like, I was like, I can't, I can't watch this. And she's like, you got to see it. it. You'll, you'll love it. And so I remember renting it and it was almost like I had rented a, a, a rated X movie. Like I had to sneak it into the house. Right. Now to be fair, to be clear, my parents were, didn't give two shits what I watched. Now <laughs> say that for like what fucked me up in life. As far as like where I'm at today in 2023, <laughs> my parents never paid attention to anything I watched. Like, so like they weren't the ones I just felt like, 
I got to sneak this in the house. Oh, my God, I'm watching The Exorcist. And I remember watching it, and it was freaky as hell. And here's my comment I'll make about that. There's two movies in particular. I mentioned Jaws being the other one as far as, like, pop culture zeitgeist. To this day, Patrick, Rosemary's Baby, which I know has a lot of controversy sterling around it because, of course, Roman Polanski did it in 1969. But that movie and um, The Exorcist are the two films made, 1969 and 1973, and then it came out in 74, to this day, Patrick, to this day, I still don't know how those films actually got made. For how hardcore those two films are in particular, especially when you interlace all the religious aspects of it, one of them is literally yeah. creating the Antichrist, and the other one is a, the demonic possession where there's scenes where a little girl is stabbing herself in the crotch with, an, with a cross. Mm-hmm. That Those movies got made, <laughs> In that era, it still stuns me to the, you couldn't do that today, Patrick, without people losing their minds. You're bringing up a good point. I mentioned this a couple of times on the show before. My favorite era of American cinema is the 1970s to to the early 1980s, which is often called like the American New Wave or the American Wave of Cinema where we, we lifted the veil on the American dream. You gotta remember the 50s, and the early 60s, it was like, you know, we won the war. We didn't really win the war, but you know what I mean? It was like, we won the war. We're amazing. Like, like America's the best. And all the stuff that was coming out of the 50s in, in movies and television were like, America's the idyllic place to live. It, it was all it was all like entertainment propaganda that just saying everything here is great. And then in the late 60s, there was this movie, you know, the, the hippie movement was coming and the drug movement was coming. And and filmmakers of the uh, that were coming out of the late '60s were like, "Yeah, we liked all those movies, but they were really a load of shit. Like the world's a hard place, and America, as great as it is, and as great as it is to live here, like people are suffering left and right, and the and 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 this country is is fucked up and weird. If you just if you just lift up the blanket and look, and The Exorcist falls into that." And it's a movie that for the first hour worth it, you you just learn about people. It's really just getting to know the characters on a deeper level. And and part of the American New Wave was it was they were character studies. Movies like Five Easy Pieces, uh, even the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like a character study on psychopaths in the in the middle of Texas. The Exorcist. In the first hour, I learned a little bit about Father Marin. I learned a little bit about Father uh, Karras. I learned a little bit about Chris, our actor. I learned I learned a lot about Reagan to set us up for a showdown in the le- in the second half of the movie when Satan has grabbed a hold of Reagan or or Pazuzu or whatever has grabbed a hold of her and and all hell is going to break loose and we got to fight for this girl's soul. We got to fight for the innocence of a child. It's just heavy shit. Like the, just the storyline about Father Karras, like trap, you know, he I think he lives in D.C. And, and but he's got to travel back to New York to see his mom who lives alone, who is invalid, who needs a lot of help. He feels guilty that he's not around her. They're just getting into his life. They're just getting into the things that that make him go to the bar and drink with other priests at the bar. I love that scene. I, lo- I just love that. Like priests hang out at a shitty dive bar in New York City. Just it just, just warms the cockles of my heart. Damon, I don't know what to tell you. Um, it was, they were just real 
gritty and darker characters. Even the even Chris, who who's played by uh, uh, Ellen Burstyn, um, she's this famous actor living in D.C., shooting this movie. Her life's kind of a mess outside of even the even though even though she's she's a well-to-do actor, her life's a little bit of a mess, and her daughter's not well, and she might not be necessarily like paying enough attention to what her daughter needs in life well before an exorcism happens you just get into these characters and you get to know them so that way when shit hits the fan you actually care if they live or die i don't know that you could make this movie today even just based on that now we we talk about movies all the time damon where you go uh give me a reason to care about the character and i'll care enough to watch to the end so they don't die but now we we I, th- I think you and I both agree that most movies these days just kind of need to get to it. They're not that clever that they can stretch it out over two two hours or whatever uh, movie. This was different. This was something they're going to place it in a movie theater and general audiences are going to go see it. They got to give them everything. They give them character. They give them story. They give them drama. And then they give them dread and horror and terror. Like, I guarantee audiences in that context had never seen and will likely never see again. It is a, it is a really incredible feat of filmmaking. When you think about how nuanced this film is in terms of what they do, you mentioned the character study. Let's just look at father Karras as a great example of that, because technically he's a supporting character. I mean, he is a main character, but obviously Chris and Reagan are our two leads. Let's say we spend more time with them than we do anyone else. But in Father Karras, right away, like the entire point of what we we spent the first hour you mentioned dealing with Father Karras outside of ever dealing with Chris or Reagan. Like he's not part of their world outside of he was at the filming when Chris is filming. He's in the audience. And then obviously she sees him in his rectory nearby where she lives. But they don't know each other. They don't have any interaction with each other. And there's certainly not any kind of friendship or kinship between them. But because we spend time with Father Karras traveling to New York and seeing his mother, and as you said, sitting down with the other priests, we realize rather quickly that this guy is having a serious crisis of faith. Like, he is a priest who may not believe anymore. And you know Mm -hmm. that. And you know that, and you know it intimately because we do spend enough time with him early in this film. So when it gets to the point where Father Karras actually does get involved with Chris and Reagan— you understand his mentality and the way he's approaching it. He's approaching it more of a psychologist, which is what he is. He's a psychologist who also happens to be a priest, but he's also discounting the religious element of it because he's so dejected by religion these days that he doesn't even want to contemplate that. And it actually takes Reagan's possession and realizing that she actually is possessed to almost rescue him and bring him back into the faith in some way because he just kind of lost belief. And you learn and learn and you believe that about him because we spend so much time with him early in the film. Um, you mentioned Chris and Reagan. They have an interesting dynamic as well. Like Chris isn't an absentee mother. She's certainly there and you tell that they really do have a close bond together, right? But she's also not there enough. You can tell that Reagan misses yeah. her. She's not there because she's out filming and doing those kind of things. But you also see the real anger and angst inside of Chris because Reagan's father has basically abandoned them. You know, that that he's gone. He's not in the picture anymore. Yeah. And so it's kind of like that dynamics there. So we learn all of that. So even before, like, this is largely a family film, like, you know, dynamic of the families, 
for the first 45 minutes. Now, in 2023, Patrick, it would be real hard to make this movie and not people not get people to just walk out of the theater and say I'm bored. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people people would be upset because they're like, "Oh my god, it's been 45 minutes. Where's the scares? Where's the devil? Where's this? Where's right. that?" Patience pays off. You know what reminds me? I, I mentioned one of our favorite films from last year. And you and I said, we regretted not reviewing it on the show, but the reason we didn't review it on the show is because it's so hard to review because so much of what the film is based around is built up to the end. And that is Speak No Evil. Brilliant yeah. film. Was it Norway? Am I getting there? Is it Norway? Uh, it, a- was, uh, it was like Dutch uh, and Danish. It was a Danish, Danish film. D- D- Denmark. That's yeah. what it was. Denmark. That film is a uncomfortable slow burn from the first minute until about an hour and 25 minutes into it. It's not until the very end, which we can't talk about, that things really go haywire in that film. But you have to be willing to stick around. You have to Mm -hmm. be willing to get through the entire film to get there. The payoff is unbelievable, but you have to show patience and the exorcist is really built. The exorcist is the blueprint for that because mm-hmm. when things start going wrong and Reagan starts exhibiting strange and bizarre behavior. And even then we still don't know what it is. I mean, you know, again, obviously the movie's called the exorcist. We know where it's going, but yeah. even in that moment when you don't know what it is, it's just such a, it's such a slow burn, uncomfortable feeling that you get. And what, magnifies it and i know you know this patrick is that it deals with a child mm-hmm. a 12 year old child that raises the stakes for everything when you're mm-hmm. dealing with a 12 year old child listen i don't have kids but even me watching that it's more uncomfortable because it's a 12 year old girl we all understand the mm-hmm. innocence that goes along with that so there's just so many elements working at play in this film that a i'm still shocked they got it done B, uh, that it still holds up to this day, and C, a little bit of sadness that it feels like we could not quite make anything like this again outside of, again, I would say Speak No Evil is a good comparison in terms of the style of film. Damon, it's amazing that you would bring up Speak No Evil, which uh, I said last year, I believe it was my number two horror film of the year. It was also my number two film of the year, period. Film, just overall. Of all the great movies and all the great dramas and comedies and stuff that come out over the year, I said, Speak No Evil is my second favorite film of the entire year, which technically means it outranked my number one horror movie of the year, and it did. But look at the landscape and how the landscape of the way people consume stories has changed. Speak No Evil in 1973 would have been on par with something like The Exorcist. It'd be, it's a totally different film. It, it tells stories in a completely different way. But we'd be talking about it in history the way we're talking about The Exorcist. It's a high-quality film, very well made, and it brings it carries you very well to a shocking end, to a, just, a, just, a, just a gut-wrenching end. I've not run into one person who was like, yeah, that was all right. Every person who's watched Speak No Evil has gone... The end of this movie haunts me and I can't get it out of my head in a very bad way. But because now the way we consume media is so fractured and we went from cinema to content, a movie like Speak No Evil is just buried amongst the hardcore horror fans. I've watched it on Shudder, which doesn't even have a big 
grouping of, of subscribers. That's where that's where we are today. It's so interesting you bring that up because The Exorcist is a worldwide phenomenon because there was only a few places you could consume stories back then. You could consume them on television, you could consume them on radio, you could consume them in books, and you could consume them in movies. Now you can consume it on your phone. You can consume everything I just said on your phone, all of it, in one spot, wherever you go, whenever you need to, at the drop of a hat. So it goes to show like we're looking we're we're talking about a, a very interesting cross section of like history where something as absolutely devastating as a speak no evil was seen by almost everybody in the world and almost everyone in the world knows that when they see the face of Reagan with the scratches and the green and all that they know what it is and It's it kind of sucks. It makes me sad a little bit because I'm like, shit, a movie like Speak No Evil, which is an like and I I promise you it could play as good as I believe, you know, Triangle of Sadness came out last year, got nominated for Best Picture. Most of that movie is just like Triangle of Sadness in in respects to how the filmmaking is told. It's just the end is just so shocking. Now we couldn't imagine a movie like Speak No Evil with an ending as crazy as it had being nominated for an Oscar. But in 1973, guess what? This wasn't just nominated for an Oscar. It won two of them, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Sound, I believe. And it was nominated for other things. Ten but total. it won it two the, Oscars. It was the yeah. first like, I mean, it, major It was the first like major horror film to ever really get nominated. And still, up, to, up until Silence of the Lambs, it was the only one that really got that kind of nominations. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's... It, it's just it's just interesting that you brought that up because I think about how great Speak No Evil is and how great this The Exorcist is as just a movie. Yeah, I'm not I don't really even look at it and we'll get we'll get into how I feel about it now with my my new brain that has been molded by this podcast. But it's just a good movie that happens to also be a horror movie. So let me ask, like, in terms of you talk about, like, your new brain watching it, and I, we always say, like, when we've gone back and rewatched films that we've seen before and then rewatch them with our quote-unquote critical eye with the, with the podcast, I've learned to watch and also appreciate films in a different way. Um, now, the way I watched this one this time was I just recently purchased, they just had it released, The Exorcist 4K, first time it's ever been on 4K. And I was like, we're reviewing it for the podcast. I am a physical media collector. You can see a bunch of my Blu-rays and stuff sitting behind me. Um, I wanted to watch it on 4K. And not only did I want to watch it on 4K, I wanted to watch the director's cut because I had seen it once when it was first released like 20 years ago in the theater. I actually did see it in the theater at that time. So first off, let me say, Patrick, the 4K is immaculate. If you are a physical media collector, or at least you don't mind buying physical media, run. Do not walk. Go buy The Exorcist in 4K. I was shocked because I I got a lot of 4Ks where I'm kind of like, this doesn't look any different than it did in the theater. Like It doesn't look any different than it does on TV. This one is dramatically better. I was stunned by the visual quality, first off. But re-watching it with that quote-unquote critical eye... It's still utterly brilliant. It's still an unbelievably brilliant film. But to see all the nuance and all the, what's the best word I can, like, the uncomfortable moments in this film felt magnified this time around, Patrick. Like, I was, I've seen this movie a dozen times, 
And I was genuinely uncomfortable more this time watching it than I'd ever been before. There were so many uncomfortable moments in this film. And I'm a big believer in we talk about scares. Like, people have different definition of scares. I know our, our final category of every show is, is it scary? And we've evolved that question over time because you and I, once we always set the stage and say you and I are kind of desensitized to it because we see so many horror films, what scares the normal person would not scare you or I. But we also have to quantify scare in a different way than just like the typical jump scare where someone turns around a corner and you hop out of your seat. There's also a lot of other scares. And to me, you always talk about dread. That's kind of what I'm talking about as well. But these uncomfortable moments, these moments where I'm just sitting fidgeting in my seat, that to me is as good as any jump scare I'm going to see in any great slasher film. This film has so many of those. When Reagan first starts exhibiting problems and she goes to the doctor and he tries to take her temperature, little innocuous moments like that. Obviously, the bloodletting scene is unbelievably uncomfortable. And I know that's one that kind of sticks out in a lot of people's minds. That made people really queasy back in the 70s. And then, obviously, once she gets fully possessed and it just spirals when she's when she grabs her mother and throws her against the wall and then slams the door behind her. I was genuinely afraid in that moment watching Chris alone with her daughter in that room. I've seen this movie a dozen times and I was still like, you got to get the fuck out of here in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, this movie is so brilliant in that way. Like when father Karras and father Marin walk into the room with Reagan tied to a bed, unable to move, only her head can move. I was still genuinely dreading what I know was coming for them. Mm-hmm. it's there's just so many elements of this film that work so well and hold up to this day it's unbelievable yeah it is and i'm glad you brought up the doctor scenes like when she's uh you know there's a very well-known scene that everybody knows and has been even parodied um is where they're all at the piano at the after party kind of hanging out and reagan comes down and, and urinates all over the carpet and then we we learn that she's actually been on pills, that she's not been well. We learn we learn that oh, actually she's kind of got a history of some mental issues anyway, and that they're that are trying to be treated. We, they don't get deep into it. We just know that there's a lived-in world where Reagan's not perfectly okay anyway. And then um, and then some some stuff that would give you the clue that possession could be there. Of course, Chris is like, well, that's not what's going on. So she takes her to the doctor. Those scenes, the bloodletting scene, is very uncomfortable. It's not like scary and it's not even necessarily dreadful, but you're watching a 12 year old because, you know, Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, was 12. You're watching a kid strapped down in a doctor's office having this horrendous procedure done. And it's it's torturing this poor kid. She's doing it without any anesthetic or anything. And you're just like, oh, God, it's awful. Like, it's just awful on a different whole different level. You're like, God, that's just terrible to be seeing that. And then it gets a little bit worse. And then she comes back for, I believe, an MRI or something like that, like a CAT scan and the old CAT scan machines of the 70s. I mean, they sound like 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 an like an old refinery, like like, you know, it's just the sounds and the uncomfortableness and this girl wailing and screaming and upset because she's being tortured. And meanwhile, we know that she is being twisted by the devil 
But these doctors are just running her through these this battery of tests and torturing her on top of that. And so like just that stuff is like, fuck, this sucks. <laughs> and then, boy, does it become undeniable that something supernatural is going on. And then we and then the worlds collide. Father Karis collides with Chris because she's finally done. Like she's like, OK, my daughter just literally attacked me and did things that can't be done. And things moved around like. I have to turn to this priest now. It has to it has to happen. And then we get into the exorcist that everybody knows and loves. But again, we built up a good 45 minutes to an hour. We just built a case for these people and what they were going through and why they had to turn to supernatural powers. Even the doctors were like, hey, you might want to consider exorcism because we can't figure this shit out. It's wild. And, and, And again, Damon, we haven't even started with the exorcism stuff. What I also love about that, what you mentioned is, is like the reality, like what, here's what I enjoy. Here's where I think a lot of exorcism movies make a mistake now is that so many exorcism films rush from it's a mental illness to it's exorcism in like eight seconds flat. Like they're like, Oh, it's not mental illness. It's, it's an exorcism. It's a possession. They're really quick to like judge and move on to possession, right? They got to get to the possession because you got to get to the interesting parts of the film where the priests are, you know, doing the exorcism and the person's climbing on the walls. And you can't just have like this conversation about mental illness. When Father Karras shows up, at that point, Chris is like, something is really off. My daughter can move shit around the room something's going on. It ain't her mental illness, but even he doesn't believe it as a priest. He's like, I went in and I threw tap water on her and she reacted. She called herself the devil, you know, things that like he, he recognizes triggers to say, this isn't real possession. It's a kid. He's a psychologist. It's a kid's, you know, kid exhibiting severe mental illness. And, to his credit, he's not wrong in that moment, right? But the roller coaster ride of that, because as you said, even the doctors, the like this round table of doctors are like, so have you ever heard of an exorcism? And even then they're kind of like, <laughs> even then they're kind of like, well, it can be a it can be a tool that the person believes they're being exercised. They're not actually being exercised. But it's a right. tool they can use to to subject the mind to, you know, to appease them of what they believe what they're trying to say is wrong with them. So even they're not going full on, you know, religious, you know, it's a devil possessing her. And then when Father Kara shows up, the priest, he's like, no, this is bullshit. Like, she's not possessed. That doesn't happen. You know what I mean? So watching yeah. this all progress and evolve throughout the film is wild to the point where it, it, it becomes undeniable. And we're like an hour and a half into the movie by the time it's undeniable that Reagan has another entity in her controlling her and it is a demon it takes us so long to get there but the journey is so arduous and so tough yeah it's torturous i mean it's tor and like and that's the thing is like when you humanize everybody so much the way they do in this movie yeah you feel for the characters who are trudging through it all that's that's what sets this aside is that it's truly just a character study it's like look at all these people look at all their complex lives and all the complex things going on then put the challenges in front of them and watch them informed by everything that we've already learned about themselves and then challenge them yet again when 
it becomes undeniable that there is something at work here that is far more evil than they could have ever imagined that even the priests could have ever imagined it's 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 very unique and i and i think and i i think to myself i go like who even dares these days to try it apparently david gordon green dares we're going to find out soon enough there's it's, it's no mistake that we're talking about the exorcist right now because it's what the 50th anniversary it uh, is that's 20 yeah yeah it is, yeah, it's 50, yeah. It's, yeah we're, it's we're talking the so 50 years later it's been hard to match this movie and I'm very curious to see what the, I mean, we, I, we, we will probably talk about that a little later is like, what, what, how possible can you compare to this? Because I just think that people of a certain age, I'd say, you know, from like maybe 35 and older would hold this as a gold standard for way more reasons than just, it's kind of creepy near the end. It's just one of the better movies you've ever seen. Like, that's the thing about it. And, and I don't know, like, I bet, like, I think you told me in the past that your girlfriend watched it and was like, yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Right. She's not, she's not terribly impressed by the exorcist. She, and she's under 35, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yes. Correct. Yes. Yeah. And so, so there you go. Like there's, it's just, it was never built into her. That era of film didn't inform a lot of, of what she grew up with. So like, this is kind of the last gasp. I mean, 50 years, half a century. We this this movie is moving into antiquity, and so it's really like I don't know, man. Like I don't know how many movies we'll talk about on this show that do it quite like The Exorcist. Well, there's certain. I think what The Exorcist has going for it, and and this is, I love genre horror films. Let me be clear about that. We're a horror podcast. Like Terrifier Two is a genre <laughs> horror film, and I love Terrifier right. Two. And I, but there are certain films that transcend horror. They're just great films. Now, right. I'm not saying that films that I love, like let's say Terrifier Two, or I don't know, I'm like trying to think of other movies like of that, like that are just really fun, great horror films. Not saying they're not right. great films. When I say transcending, is that you kind of forget their horror. They're great horror, right. but they're also just great films. Silence yeah. of the Lambs is a great example of that. A film we know won Perfect every example. Academy Award ever. And The Exorcist, Jaws. There are certain films that just transcend that to where you you know they're horror, but they transcend it. Alien is another one. It's horror. Yeah. But yeah. it's so well done, and it's so nuanced, and it's so different that it's just a great piece of filmmaking. And I think that's what The Exorcist really sets itself apart from a lot of other films, especially in this genre is that it's just an incredible piece of filmmaking. And oh yeah, it's also unbelievably terrifying and horrific. You know, like that's the way I would describe it. Like, yes, of course it's a horror film, but it's also a character study. It is, uh, it is, um, it is disturbing that doesn't have anything to do with horror. You know, there's just so many layers to the exorcist that you have to dig through and then we haven't even really gotten to the last 30 minutes. The last yeah, 30 really minutes, haven't. when Father Karras goes in and then Father, Ma oh, the, the iconic scene, which let me tell you, Patrick, when I was a kid and I rented this for the first time when I was like 12 or 13, the cover of this film, which was nothing more than the townhouse, a, a lamp, 
And the silhouette of Father Marin showing up, which was based on a famous painting, Empire of Light, I think is what it was called. Um, that's that scene. We all know that picture, right? The, the famous silhouette. Oh, yeah. For what it, this is like, that was the that's how iconic this film was. That cover freaked me out because <laughs> I'd heard so many things about The Exorcist. The cover of Father Marin showing up freaked me out. But from the moment Father Marin shows up in that house, everything goes absolutely bat shit. And it is so scary. Patrick, it is so scary from that moment on. When they walk into that room with Reagan together, it is, you know, like obviously we see there's a chill in the room, which they really did. They actually dropped the temperature. They use refrigerator units to drop 30 degrees in the room negative it was de- like negative degrees in there at some points to make sure you could see the breath coming out from there from their from their mouths but you feel it like you when they walk in that room i feel a chill come over my body that's how effective it yeah. is and it's a little girl it's a 12 year old girl and two grown mm-hmm. men and i'm terrified yeah. for them walking in that room every single time i see this movie patrick that last 30 minutes let's just get into it that last 30 minutes is some of the most amazing, terrifying, horrific filmmaking in history. Not horror history, history. I don't know that we've ever seen anything quite like it or will ever see anything quite like that again. Well, I think where it starts is that everything you see there happened in camera. Um, that I've, I, I use the, the term crafty filmmaking on here all the time. They crafted everything in camera, everything you see happened on set. Cause I mean, even since the time of silent films, people will like fuck with the film even afterwards to try to create like lightning strikes and color and this and that everything you saw happened. There was, their breath was fogging up because the room was 30 fucking degrees. And everybody was like, like suffering hypothermia and all that shit. Like if, if they levitated her, they put the camera in just the right spot. They didn't come in and erase the platform. They, they sold it. They sold everything. The way, the way the camera saw it is the way you get to see it. So right away, it's real. Even like the head, the, the head spinning moment is the most obvious fake. Like you can see her body kind of like stiff, like it's and clearly her head turning and, and even the, the film is sped up a little bit. Like you can tell it's fake, but that uncanny valley, because everything there you see, everything you're seeing is there. There's a disturbing aspect to it. But I'm going to counter you on something, Damon, because this is what changed about this, fi- this last viewing of it. These last 30 minutes, th- this, this showdown with uh, Father Marin, Father Karras, uh, against uh, Reagan and this demon, I was just intensely sad. That's what got me this time. Th- the ticking clock of that last 30 minutes is this girl's going to die. And she's withering away. You, I, I, I mean, I never put it together any of the other times. The scarring, the scratching, the green face, the, the, pea, the pea soup vomit. It's her dying. And what I'm watching as her body's levitating, it's a beautiful scene. It just shot so well with the light and everything. I was just so impressed with it. But then I see the image of this girl and we're losing her and we're gaining the devil. 
And I was like, this is fucked. This is sad. Because it, because it's, it is, it's a kid. And we, we've talked about this on the show. You can make a, a scene scary, but the investment changes when it's a child. The investment for everybody changes. Like, oh no, a child can't fight. A child can't, they can't do anything. They're, they're helpless in the situation. And that adds to the dread. The dread for me came from that. It was going, oh no, she's going to die. Even though I know she's not going to die. I know, how, I know how this movie ends. I've known for 30 years how this movie ends. But I'm watching her deteriorate on screen. And I'm watching her get, like, like slip farther and farther away. That craftsmanship, the way it was shot, the way it was told, the way the, the choices they made for what the character of Reagan would say was like, oh, no. And like there was, you know, everybody talks about the pea soup where she spits it in Father Marin's face. OK, that's fine. But there's another pea soup moment that's far less like iconic. And she's just laying there in the bed and she kind of her head like rolls over to the side and all of this green bile comes just, just it's just falling out while the, they're talking. There, there's other movement and business going on in the scene. And I'm going, oh, that's a kid dying. That's what's going on. Like that, all that bile and evil that's tearing through her body is, is manifesting itself physically. And I was just like, this is rough. This is heavy. And I, 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 it had never hit me like that before. I, I wasn't scared anymore. I was just like, please save this girl. Yeah. And that was a whole new experience for me. That's a great point. I never really thought about it that way, but when you're when I when you say that and I think about it, you're right. I did I did think that here's when I thought that honestly, Patrick, and that was when I was watching the arcane 70s medical procedures. That was the moment where I was oh, like, yeah. I, oh, I, I feel, too, I, yes. I'm like terrified for this poor girl because I'm like, good God, was I glad I was not alive back then and had to get this shit done to me. They're, but they're, but they're analogous. Yeah. The, the the medical system put her through her own through their version of an exorcism. Yeah. And then they had to go through the real one. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's it, funny you bring that up. Yeah, that's when I was like, I legitimately felt bad. Like, and again, I'm with you. I've seen this movie, you know, a dozen times. And that moment, I was like, my God, like this is hard to watch. Um, yeah. It was really hard to watch them put her through there and the uncomfortableness. And also, Linda Blair absolutely killed it in those scenes the way she's like squirming and kind of like uncomfortable and you can tell she's i mean you really feel like she's getting harmed in those yes. moments like you, yes. you're like this is this is hard to watch like this is not this is not easy to watch right now to see her go through this it's mm-hmm. really uncomfortable so yeah like i'm with you in that regard when the medical scenes were happening that's how i felt i was legitimately scared for her in those moments but yeah like the whole the whole movie is just so brilliantly executed it's unlike anything else and i want to bring this up because we're going to get into categories here in a second obviously we're going to kick things off at best performance but before we get there i want to mention how this film came together under such odd circumstances because every single role that cat that ended up in this movie was different like six months earlier. I want to go through some of the choices here. Now let's start right off. Let's start right off the bat with director, because as I mentioned in our intro, William Peter Blatty, the author of the exorcist made sure when he sold his script to Warner's, who was the studio that made this film, 
he would not sell it without him staying on as an executive producer. And that scared off a lot of the other studios because they're like, no, no, we want this to, we want to buy the script and the story, then you can fuck off. And William Peter Blatt is like, no, no, this is my story. This is my script. I'm going to be here to make decisions. Thank God William Peter Blatty did. Because while I do think some of these directorial choices were great, Arthur Penn was one. Stanley Kubrick was another. Now, Stanley Kubrick is iconic. No fault there. Mark Rydell was actually hired, but it was William Peter Blatty who said he saw the French Connection, which won the Oscar in 1971, and he said, I need that kind of gritty realness Mm -hmm. in what is ultimately kind of a supernatural film. And so he battled to get William Friedkin on. And then William Friedkin obviously got hired. So let's go, let's go a little further up. Now we're into casting. So casting for this film was not easy because the script is such difficult subject matter, children involved, exorcism, some very brutal scenes, which we're going to get into shortly. A lot of people, a lot of people didn't want to be involved with the movie. Um, so let's start with Father Karras. Jack Nicholson and Paul Newman were both <laughs> up and considered for the role. Could you imagine Jack Nicholson playing Father Karras in this role? Listen, citizen, I'm going to exercise that demon. You ain't going to get me. Come on, devil. I got you. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I love Jack. Oh, I do. It would have been a completely different movie, but Jack is like one of my top guys of all time. Yeah, you can just hear right now, Chris is like, are you going to exercise my daughter? You're goddamn right I am! (laughs) It might be better for everyone's mental health that him and William Friedkin weren't on the same set together. William Friedkin himself is another notorious tyrant. So then, those two were up for the role. Ultimately, the role went to Stacey Keach. He got hired. Hmm. Now, Stacey Keach is a a good actor. I like Stacey Keach. Um... For current day people who may not be as familiar with Stacey Keach, probably the role that most film fans will know him from is he played the head skinhead leader in American History X. He was Edward Norton's mentor, so to speak, in that movie. He was like the lead Nazi guy in that movie. Character actor, been around. He was a TV actor for many years. He's been around. Stacey Keach got hired. And then... William Friedkin, or excuse me, William Peter Blatty had seen a play that was written by Jason Miller. And he went and saw it and he talked to him afterwards and had a great conversation with him. And Jason read the script and told him, listen, I'm Father Karras. He was a, a, a theology student on his way to becoming a priest and he dropped out. He lost his faith, dropped out, started writing screenplays and became a playwright. He is literally Father Karras. And he's like, I am Father Karras. And so William, excuse me, William Peter Blatty battled with the studio. They paid off Stacey Keach, and they hired <laughs> Jason Miller. Now, Jason Miller is best known as a playwright and as a play as a uh, stage actor. But for those who may not know, his famous son is Jason Patrick from The Lost Boys. <laughs> That's Jason Incredible. Miller's son. So Jason Miller gets hired. At that point, he had not he had never done a film role. He was a play, he was a stage actor. So there's one. Now, when it came to the role of Chris McNeil, the lead actor, the lead actress, Audrey Hepburn, Anne oh, Bancroft, and Jane Fonda were all considered. 
And then the one that was thrown out there that I was totally like, really? Was Carol Burnett. <laughs> Somebody thought Carol Burnett would work in that role. And I was like, that's a really odd choice. I love Carol Burnett. I really have a hard time seeing her as playing Chris, but neither here nor there. Ellen Burst. I bet she would have killed it. Maybe. Maybe she would have killed it. Ellen Burstyn gets the role because Ellen Burstyn fought for it. She read for it. She's like, I am going to get this role. She fought for it and won it. And obviously she was incredible. She's nominated across yeah. the board. Uh, she actually won an Oscar the following year for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which was the Martin Scorsese movie. So she didn't win it for The Exorcist, but she did win it for uh, for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. She was high level. In, in, I mean, she's she's still, uh, she's always been high level, but she was a, like as as hot as you got for an actress at that level right now. You know, like, like Meryl Streep 10 years ago or so, Margot Robbie now, where it's just like, if you know Margot Robbie's in your movie, it might win an Oscar or be nominated for an Oscar. That, that was Ellen Burstyn when she took this role. Yeah, so let's talk about Reagan. The original person who was up for the role was Denise Nickerson. Now, that name may not sound famous to anybody else, but she played Violet Beauregard in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. She was up for the role, but her parents thought the material was too dark. Here's Here's one that threw me. Here's the one that threw me. Jamie Lee Curtis reportedly wanted to audition for the role, but her mother... Janet Lee, who of course famously played in Psycho, didn't want her to audition for the role. It was too dark. So she wouldn't allow Jamie Lee Curtis to audition. Linda Blair's agent didn't even put her up for it. Didn't even put her up for it. At that point, she had been in like a soap opera and done like a commercial. It was Linda Blair's mother who read the script. And unlike everybody else who was disturbed by it, she's like, this is brilliant. And she basically took them in and said, you need to see my daughter. And that's how Linda Blair got the role. Mm -hmm. Uh, The role of Father Marin was originally up for Marlon Brando, of all people. (laughs) He was going to make he was going to make the devil an offer he couldn't refuse. Uh, Whatever his name is, uh, get out of there. Yeah. But once again, (laughs) here's William Peter Blatty's influence. William Peter Blatty said, if Marlon Brando is in this movie, it's going to become a Marlon Brando movie. It's no longer going to be The Exorcist. It's going to be Marlon Brando in The Exorcist. And he didn't want that because this was supposed to be about a story and characters, not the guy starring in the movie. So they end up getting Max von Sydow, who was not super famous. But here's the I honestly, I swear I didn't know this. I, I don't know how I didn't know this, but I didn't know this. He was like 41. Oh my God! I, it drove me. Nuts. I was looking it up, and I because if you if you watched Game of Thrones, you know who Max von Sydow is. Damon, you, you you probably know his correct title. He is the Three Eyed Raven. Yes, he is the yeah he, he yeah. is the Three Eyed Raven. Yes, fantastic job as the Three Eyed Raven. But like he looks just as old in The Exorcist <laughs> as he yeah. does in Game of Thrones, which was almost forty years later. He looks yeah. the same age, which was he looked old then. They put him in some great makeup actually at the time, but he was only 41 years old. And I was like, oh my God, he's younger than me. And he looked like a frail old man. It was incredible. I was okay. I listen, they age people up and down all the time now. And there's some that are done well, there's others that are done quite poorly. That might be one of the best makeup jobs ever because I seriously had no idea he was only 41 when I saw this movie. No clue yeah. he was that young when he did this. They aged him up to look like he's in his 70s. That's insane. Yeah, to me. It, like I was like, it, how, it was crazy. Yeah, crazy. 
So there's all your weird, like, you know, the, the all casting strangeness and oddities. And you know what's funny? As I mentioned, so much of the influence was William Peter Blatty saying, no, not this and this. Mm-hmm. Listen, I you know, obviously William Peter Blatty, he ended up directing and writing The Exorcist three years later. Obviously an incredible you know author in his own right. But for basically being, you know, in his, he had written movies before and a lot of comedies, which is kind of funny uh, with with uh, with Blake Edwards years earlier. But for a guy to have that much gravitas to say to himself, first one, I'm not giving up my producer role. I'm not well, I'm not selling you my script and you just do whatever you want with it to have the balls to do that. And then also to have the balls to say, no, no, we're not hiring Marlon Brando. <laughs> For this role, or Jack Nicholson, we're gonna hire yeah. Jason Miller, a rel- basically an unknown, and we're gonna hire Max von Sydow of all people, who was not a name either. Like to have the balls and the just the the gumption to say that, and then you get this film, which is you know, at worst, what a top fifty film ever, like film, not horror film, film. Yeah, yeah. like easily. Im- imagine. Like, I'm not saying the people who they would have gotten in the roles wouldn't have been good. I, I'm a massive Jack Nicholson fan. I love Jack Nicholson. Love Jack. Um, I, I love Marlon Brando. I mean, I love The Godfather. I'm a huge Godfather fan. Um, and I like him, obviously, in Apocalypse Now. Like, I'm, he's incredible. Um, yeah. Obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis, five years later, stars in Halloween, and she's, of course, one of the all-time greatest scream queens. All the roles that were up for other people or could have been up for other people all had legitimately good people. But you think about this movie and it's like, can you, I mean, could you picture someone other than Ellen Burstyn doing what she did? Linda Blair, Jason Miller, Max von Sydow. This was really like, this was a stroke of genius on a whole other level because Patrick, you and I both know there's a lot. Listen, I just watched the first episode of American Horror Story this week. Going way <laughs> off topic here. Now, American Horror way Story, off. American Horror Story has done some really weird casting over the years. Years ago, they cast Lady Gaga in a role in American Horror Story. And I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. Patrick, it worked. Obviously, she went on to star in A Star is Born, got Academy yeah. Award nominations. She actually legitimately became a great actor. Let me tell I'm you right now. Lady who's, Gaga fan. Let me tell you who's not a great actor. That would be Kim Kardashian. All right. <laughs> that's where you take a that's where you take a roll of the dice and you say, let's see how this works out. Didn't work out. Not through one episode, anyways. My point being, how I'm getting back to the exorcist is Jason Miller, yes, an accomplished stage actor, but he'd never been in movies. Ellen mm-hmm. Burstyn wasn't a huge star at that point. Linda Blair had been in a soap opera. You know what I mean? Max von Sydow. Was a was a foreign actor coming in over Marlon fucking Brando. Yeah. And that's what they do you realize how much of a risk they took with the roles that they cast? Yeah, no, it's huge. It's crazy. Also, you know, for the time it was it was like a decent it was kind of like a mid-sized budget. It was eleven million, which for 1973, 72, that's like good enough money. Like they were spending the money. So it's not a matter of like they couldn't afford those people. They were they were actively they they, they some of these people were downright cast. But Blatty, it's it is a phenomenon. Like I don't know how, I don't know enough about the story, and I and I want to say it was something like he had had a script a long time ago that was running around town that actually ended up didn't not doing well, and Friedkin comes in because 
Friedkin told him that that script sucked, that old script. And then I think uh, Blatty ended up getting like some clout with it, with another script or something. And then so when The Exorcist came around, he had enough heat on him that people would listen to him. It's kind of like, I don't know, today, if like, you know, Zach Greger right now today, he, he's going to get a meeting in every room because he did Barbarian. The same thing with, uh, with, with uh, 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 oh shit, the guy who did Smile. Yeah, I know you're talking about Parker Finn. Parker Finn, Finn, you know, like these these guys just did incredible movies. They get they get to open every door and go, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. I think that's kind of where Blatty was at in his career. And then he and when it came time for the director, he goes, "Bring me that freaking guy who said that my script sucked," because he was the only one that was honest with me. Yeah, he was the only one that said it's not right. You need you need a lot more work on this. And so he that's and. And all of this coalesced into what is one, like you're saying, one of the top 50 films of all time. It really is. It's unbelievable. All right, let's get into categories. Let's kick things off as we do each and every week as we go through all these casting questions and casting changes and ultimately who got in here. And let me be clear. I think a lot of these probably could have worked, but obviously what did work was what ended up in the film. So Patrick, for best performance in The Exorcist, who you got? Because... Let me also be clear. There's not a bad performance in this movie. They're all good. Like they're all good performances, but who is the best? Who is number one for you? I got to go with Linda Blair as the very possessed Reagan. Um, I really actually was more impressed with her post or I would, I shouldn't say post, but like when, when things started to turn bad for Reagan is when I, I really became impressed with Linda Blair's performance when things are sort of normal and she's talking with mom and the Ouija board and Mr. Whatever his name is, Captain. Uh, you know, like, yeah, like all of that was like, okay, that's a little stiff seventies kind of kid acting that I've, I've come to know my most of my life. But when she starts to suffer, when she starts to go through the hell of it all, that's when the performance really comes through. That's when I was like, wow, this kid is suffering. You know, I talked about it earlier. You know, that, that, I, that was really what got me with this movie. And it's because she was selling it, which that's not easy to do. You know, she could have easily been a kid. It was just like, eh, eh, and like, just, oh, wow, that's not working on screen. I don't know what to do. I mean, I feel like if that was actually happening on the set of The Exorcist, they probably would have fired her and moved on. <laughs> they were getting incredible suffering out of this kid and how linda blair was able to channel that um i don't want to know if william freakin was truly torturing i know there's a lot of stories out there and he's kind of a notorious director i'm not even necessarily a fan of the man for multiple reasons one the mere mention of his name around sigourney weaver and she will fucking clam up right away you fuck with sigourney you're fucking with my fucking people like Mm. so that's one and then two he's a guy who became Catholic later in life. And don't get me started there. You're supposed to start Catholic and walk away, not the other way around. Anyway, I digress. The pairing of those two together manifested a performance for the ages. And like I said earlier, my whole life, I've known who Reagan is without and going the first 15 years of my life or so, never even seeing the performance itself. It's because she did something that I don't think any other kids at the time could have done. Maybe not even Jamie Lee Curtis, to be honest with you. No, you're absolutely right. The moment that I 
was truly blown away by Linda Blair's performance in this film. And I, and I noticed it more on this rewatch. You mentioned how well she sells it when like go everything she goes through when she's just being tortured, both physically through the doctors and then obviously physically through the demon. She sells it and does it so well. But the moment that I was really blown away by Linda Blair's performance was when I saw a darkness in her. And that is the moment, and it's a very famous photo, but I noticed it even more in this version when I watched it a couple last night, was when the doctor comes to the house to investigate or to, uh, to, uh, um, uh, to examine Reagan. And he, he's examining her in the chair, and she looks up at him. We all know that famous image where she looks up at him, and it's terrifying. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like where he, she's sitting in the chair, and she just kind of looks up at him, and you see that darkness in her eyes. That moment, I was like, that is a look worth a million dollars. Like, you just can't, like, there's no words being said. She just looks at him like, I'm going to rip your fucking soul apart. That was the look she's giving him. And I'm like, that was terrifying to me. And that's a 12-year-old girl giving that look. Like, that was like, you just sold this, man. You just sold it huge. Here's the one thing I'll say about Linda Blair, and I'll get to my best performance in a second. She's incredible. And and also let me be clear when I say this, this isn't a criticism of Linda Blair because she's, she's had a career. She's gone on to do a lot of things. She's been in a lot of movies. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to denigrate what she's done, but it's still shocking to me, Patrick, that in 2023, that after that kind of performance, that Linda Blair didn't become like an A-list, like she didn't become Deborah Winger in the 80s. You know, she didn't right. become Sigourney Weaver in the 80s. Like she didn't become, you know, a massive star in the 80s because she was so young in the 70s. Like it's shocking to me, like how good she yeah. was that she didn't go on. And I understand not everyone's going to have that same career. I get that. I understand that. But it's kind of like watching like when Kirsten Dunst was not, she got nominated for an interview with a vampire. I'm remembering that correctly, right? Um, and then obviously Kristen, Kristen Dunst has gone on to have a very good career and she's gotten nominated for a million things since then. That's the career I feel like Linda Blair should have had. Now, again, I don't want to sound like I'm denigrating what she's done. She's still acting to this day. I don't want to make it sound like she's done nothing. I'm certainly not saying that, but it's like, this was one where I felt like, oh, she got nominated for an Oscar in 82, 88, 92. You know what I mean? Like she, to me, I'm like shocked. She didn't have that kind of career. Yeah, I couldn't answer that for you. And I, I sort of remember, I, I remember actually learning so much more about The Exorcist before ever even watching the movie, just kind of learning about what it did to Linda Blair. Yeah. And I know she came back for the sequel. Um, I, I think I think it was just maybe too much too soon for her. Like just the experience, because it was apparently a very intense set, uh, at, you know, where, where they, they pulled up. Like, could you imagine Stanley Kubrick, like, the way he likes to torture actors you know what i mean i heard william freaking was not far off and so you know maybe maybe it just fucking soured her because what it took to get that that performance was too much and so i think she probably i'm not going to put words in her mouth but she might have gotten a little protective of herself after that and it was just sort of like i don't really know how i don't know i don't know my way into this uh, this business long term because the first my first real taste of it was fucking horrifying you know like and, and not just horrifying as a working condition but like horrifying too once you see yourself on screen 
and you're like, oh God, like, I don't, you know, no, no little kid wants to look up on screen and see themselves as, as a demon, you know, like, 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 like gross and kind of disgusting and, and everyone in the world's scared of you and you're walking down the street and people are going, oh, it's the little devil, you know, like <sighs> it's the little, it's that little devil girl probably fucked her up. I mean, I know it did. She said it, she said it before that this movie fucked her up. So th- there is that. I mean, I want to give her flowers and say thank you for one of the most iconic performances of all time. That's 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 my entire childhood was spoofed, satirized and 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 homaged as much as it possibly could have been, because it was one of the most unforgivable, forgettable performances you'll ever see. Yeah, she was. And again, I'm not like I said, I want to be clear. I'm not knocking what she went through. I'm certainly not knocking the curse she's put together, but. It's just shocking to me. Like to me, she's so good that I'm like, man, I think she could have she could have played in anything. And like it just stuns me that like she didn't end up becoming, you know, Deborah Winger or other you know, actors of the eighties who were like, yeah. you know, really great actors of that era. And I'm just like, man, like she was so good. So for me, best performance, I had a couple of choices. Obviously, I think Ellen Burstyn is incredible in this movie, and she's just a great actor all the way around. She's been nominated and like she won an as i mentioned earlier she won an oscar the year after this for alice doesn't live here anymore which is a martin scorsese film she got nominated years later for requiem for a dream which by the way is one of the most fucked up movies you will ever see it's not a horror film but it's horrific let me tell you as well be yeah it is fucking it is fucking wild um she got nominated for that so she's iconic so i obviously want to give her her flowers as well but my choice for best performance patrick goes to jason miller because Jason Miller's father, Karis, I talked about what really sold me on Linda Blair this time was that darkness I saw in her eyes. There's a darkness in father Karis as well throughout mm-hmm. this movie. There's a yeah. real sadness to him. This entire movie, mm-hmm. like he's downtrodden, he's beaten. He's a broken man. You know, he's yeah. lost his faith. He's not really, he's not, he's not living anymore. And he, and he knows it. And he's really feeling that internally, you know what I mean? And like, that's like when he gets called upon and he's getting called upon as both a psychiatrist and a priest, he kind of leaves the priest behind because he doesn't have that faith anymore. But his portrayal as Father Karras is so dark and so powerful. And the entire time throughout the entire film, he just does it so well because it's subdued. He's not over the top. Now, when he does finally go over the top towards the end, it's brilliant and it works really, really well because you don't see it coming necessarily in that moment when he walks into the room and finds Father Marin dead and he flips out on on Reagan and then obviously, you know, leaps out the window and, and kills himself. But he's so subdued and so stoic, yet so powerful in everything he does in this film. And I, I've always liked his performance, but rewatching it this latest time, I was just like, wow, he was so good in that role and like Jack Nicholson, amazing actor. I love him. Paul Newman, obviously iconic, incredible actor. Stacey Keach, I think, is a great actor. I don't think anybody could have played Father Karras better than Jason Miller did. And I do think that him being a former, you know, parochial, you know, being you know involved as like trying to become a priest and dropping out and losing his faith. I mean, those, you know, having that personal experience to play into the role certainly helped him, I'm sure. There's no research involved there. He went through it. He lived it. He was Father Karras. But man, does he man, does he sell it in this movie? You very could have easily edited this movie just a little bit differently. And this would have been a movie about Father Karras. 
And it wouldn't have been called The Exorcist. It would have been called, you know, I'm not I'm not going to give it a shitty title right now, but basically the Father Karras movie. It was that close to just being a movie about him. And imagine like a movie where instead of putting a ton of focus on Chris and Reagan, that you just cut to him and like and they're in the background of his story. Yeah. And it's it's no wonder, you know, like there a, a large swath of his story has to do with his mom dying, right? He go we see very early in the movie, he goes back to visit her in New York. She's not doing well. He goes back to uh DC to to keep working, and then he finds out that she's died. And it just she she died in like a mental institution or something. Yeah. And it just it it fucking destroys him. And he's ready to fucking end it all. He's he was already teetering when we met him. And that happened. And he feels just like a failure, like an absolute failure. And then this exorcism is put in his lap. And he's like, well, this is my chance to do something good for somebody. But in if you if you again, if you re-edited this movie just a little bit, uh, just a little differently, you would realize that this is a guy on a suicide mission. Yeah, he's got nothing to live for. He lost his mother. He's lost his faith the best he could do at this point is sacrifice himself to save somebody else. Yep. And that's what he does. That's how this movie ends. That's why this movie, he just, he just takes all the rage and anger and pain and says, you know, you're hungry for suffering. I've got it. Come take it. Bazoo you fuck. <laughs> and he jumps into him and he goes, cool. And he just, he, he chucks himself out of the window because there's nothing left for him. Yeah. And he's watched this girl deteriorate in front of his eyes. Humanity is done in his mind. He's got his movie. It's in this movie. Yeah. The Father Cares movie's there. I can't save myself, so I'm going to save this girl. I couldn't save my mother, so I'm going yeah. to save this little girl. And he just yeah. it's yeah, it's just brilliant. He's so good. Fantastic. And he and he wore it. Uh, Jason Miller absolutely wore that role. I felt it the whole time, the pain of it all. Yeah. It was fantastic. Really yeah. fantastic performance. Really good, really good performance. Let's talk about Best Scare, because this movie is filled with dread, uncomfortable moments. So there's a lot of different levels to scare, and you'll see where I'm going when I get to mine. But Patrick, what is your best scare in The Exorcist? You're right. There's there's a lot of levels to scare. I would call this movie more dread than scare for the most part. Um, but there, I, I had to pick out more of a classical scare because I think so much of this movie exists in like the exorcism scenes when we're talking about horror. I just loved this one moment where mom's up in, I think it's the attic. Oh, it mm. is the attic. And you, you know why I remember that? She has the exact same attic door I had growing up. It made oh the God. same sound. And I'm going, wow, I'm really glad that I saw this when I was older because I would have never gone up in my attic if I had seen it as a little kid because it sounds the same. It looked as the same fucking attic door. Anyway, she's up there with the attic in the attic looking around for, the, for what she believes, I think, was rats or something. She thought rats right. were in the house. Yeah. And she's holding the candle. And the scene ends on the candle like like blowing up a little bit like the light from the can it's a it's a really interesting gag that almost reminded me of something out of like the conjuring yeah where the candle just goes and like and and then all she she freaks out and moves away it didn't even really scare me but it was just so classically good that i chose that as my best scare it's a good one it's it's probably the closest you'll get to a jump scare in this movie 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. it's like the classic jump scare in that moment. It is. It works really well. It does work really well. And like you know, she's looking for the rats. And then the candle just bursts into like huge flames and it's just really jarring. So yeah, it's a really good one. So I cheated, Patrick. I, I chose two. And the no, second one, I, the, the second one, I really cheated. The first one, there are like three different moments in this movie where you see the face of Pizazu, the demon. One when Reagan is in the hospital. One, when Chris comes home and she's walking through the kitchen, you see the flash of the demon's face, then once later in the film during the exorcism. For whatever reason, those little flashes of that white, pale-faced demon with the red eyes was really freaky to me. Every single time it happened, and it's just like a momentary flash. Like, they don't, like, hold it on the screen. You really have to, like, see it. But it's jarring in those moments because they do flash it. It's almost like a subliminal image. And it was really jarring watching it this time. I was like, damn, like it was just like that little jolt of like, there's the fucking demon. That's one. The second one, I'm fully cheating here. The exorcism scene from when Father Marin gets in the room until Father Karras jumps out the window. That whole 20 minutes. It's mm-hmm. relentless, Patrick. And I can't sit it's here fun. and say it's the moment where he sprinkles the wa- the holy water or where she levitates off the bed or where they're doing the famous, the power of Christ compels you. None of that. They're all there. I can't dwindle it down to one moment. That 20 mm-hmm. minutes or 15 minutes, whatever, the moment Father Marin walks in that room to the moment when Father Karras jumps out the window and kills himself, that to me is one of the scariest, most dread-filled, most uncomfortable, hardest-to-watch, most horrific scenes in movie history, it's so powerful. It's so well done. It's so well acted. Um, I couldn't, I would be doing it a disservice, Patrick. I sat here and said, well, that one moment where she levitates <laughs> off the bed, that whole 20 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever it is, is so good. And it's so scary. Yeah. And I could just watch that scene and I'd be sitting there, you know, clutching my pearls the whole time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a hell of a scene. I mean, it it is, it is burned into uh, a, a couple of generations uh, of people that that whole scene, I mean, like uh, even revisiting it, I was like, I was only, I, I imagined that most of the movie took place there just because it's how it's always been in my mind is that exorcism scene, but it really is the last 30 minutes of the movie of a two hour movie. So yeah, it's not, nah, you're spot on dude. It's how do you, it's not cheating. It just is. <laughs> it's, it's just it's that fucked. scene. That scene yeah, is so fucked. is so crazy, yeah. So uh, that's also where the moment where, is that is that the moment where the mo- your mother yeah your mother sucks cocks in hell. That's from that scene. So. Yeah, because she's talking to one of the oh she's talking yeah, to Karis about yeah, that. She's talking he's, to Karis, he's yeah. sad about his mother and she has some. She's like she's like one of the deadites. Like she's got to talk shit to him too. Yeah, she's like your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> like, God, jeez, this demon's really going for the jugular here. Jesus, God. what you um, say about my mama? God damn, yeah. don't you know I'm a boxer? I'll throw these hands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Father Karras can throw some hands. Um, Patrick, <laughs> let's talk about the universe. I'm not even gonna. I'm not even gonna tease this one to like say we're picking different things here. Let's talk about the most disturbing scene in The Exorcist, yeah. bar none. There's no debate. There's certainly no like number one and number two. There's number one, and then there's everything else. Everything else, Damon. Um, the most disturbing scene in this movie is the crucifix scene. Now um, it's been described many different ways that she's masturbating the crucifix, that she's uh, uh, mutilating herself. However you want to say it, they don't, they don't explicitly show it, but they don't, they're not hiding what's happening either. 
like I've always just kind of known that scene in my head. And this was the first time I actually did. And this maybe says something terrible about me. I had to rewatch the scene because I go, I, I don't think I remember it being this absolutely awful. And this is the scene. This is the you could call this the catalyst of the movie, really, because this was the scene where Chris decided, oh, this is not my little girl's got a mental issue. This is something way worse, way, way worse. And it starts with, you know, she hears the commotion. She rushes into the room and Reagan is stabbing herself. Uh, there's blood everywhere. It's really awful. And then the, the thing that I totally just forgot, and I don't know how I could have forgotten this. It's so incredibly insane. Is that she grabs Chris by the hair and shoves her down and says, lick me, lick. And it's you're like, oh, fuck, way too much. You guys just all went way too far. Yeah. Like, I don't think there's anyone anywhere that goes, you guys just went too far. And then like, and then like, you know, there's furniture moving around and she's slamming on Chris. And then the, the head twist, the very famous head twist is part of that. I was like, this scene is fucking insane. This scene is too much. And like, I've seen everything, Damon. I've seen it all. It's all awful. I've seen all the awful things you can see in horror it's just something about that where I was just like, what the fuck are you guys doing? Like, what are you doing? Don't do this. And they did it. I've seen Human Centipede. I've seen Martyrs, which we talked about on this mm -hmm. podcast. And I said, it's a brilliant film. Yep. I never want to see again. Um, yep. I just talked earlier about the ending of Speak No Evil, which I'm not going to spoil, but holy shit. It is that is one of the most one of the most disturbing endings of a film ever. Yeah. All of that still pales in comparison to this scene with Reagan stabbing <laughs> herself with the crucifix and saying, yeah. Jesus, fuck me, fuck me, Jesus. Yeah. And then grabbing yeah. her mother and saying, lick me. Lick oh, my God. And that's the scene I talked about earlier where she chucks Chris down. She's got blood covering her face, her daughter's blood, and she closes the door and won't let. Oh, my God. It's that scene is so it is wild. It is full on like it is full on like I am convinced William Peter Blatty was doing lines of coke and he's like, what's the craziest thing I could put in this fucking book? Oh, yeah. Let's have her masturbate with a crucifix. I mean, I it can't is, believe that it's wild. And right. here's the here, yeah. here's the thing. Here's the crazy thing. It's more graphic in the book. Oh, God. They toned it down <laughs> for the movie. Jesus Christ. Cause like I thought about when I was watching that scene, I was like, how did this movie not get an X rating? Yeah. Just from that. And they, you know what, what they left in there at that time in America could have constituted an X rating. Well, there were, but I read, I read, so I was doing research for this movie. There was a, there was a story because when this came out, there was a lot of controversy about that. Cause a lot of the parent groups and religious groups were like, this should be an X rated movie. Kids shouldn't get in. And there was actually, because this movie's based in DC, a lot of kids wanted to go see it because they filmed it in DC. Like you can, the, 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 yeah. the exorcist stairs where father Karras falls to his death. It's there. Like you can go there to this day. It's still a very famous spot in Washington, DC where people go to visit the exorcist stairs. It's, it's there to this day. Um, at that time in the seventies, a lot of kids who lived in that neighborhood, they're like, we want to go see, cause it was all filmed really around that area in DC. And they actually had police, sitting outside of theaters to basically make sure no one under 18 got to go in to see the exorcist. That's how hardcore they were about it because they thought it should have been an X rating because this movie is so yeah. crazy. 
So, yeah, this is the most disturbing scene. It's not a debate, Patrick. This scene, right. if this scene doesn't disturb you, you've got real issues. Like, you may want to go yeah, seek out your own father, Karis. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I want to know you if that scene dis- didn't disturb you. I remember, because, I, I, again, I saw this when I was younger, and I don't, for whatever reason, this that scene, I don't know, maybe I just didn't know truly maybe, what was yeah. happening, you know? But I remember seeing it later, years later, like when I was maybe in my 20s, and I was like, this scene is fucked. Like, this scene is so messed up. I'd never, I've, to this day, I've never, like, people try to up the disturbing factor and, like, the gross-out factor in films, and I understand that. Yeah. That's part of horror. Nothing touches this scene. This is, this is, this is the gold standard of fucked-up scenes. Yeah, it's so fucking disturbing. Yeah, and you know what it is, is I think like, I mean, listen, Terrifier 2 has scenes you can argue, or even Terrifier 1 has scenes that you can argue are, are far more graphically disturbing, and they are, you know, like you're actually seeing some serious mutilation, but like there's no humanity in any of it. Like it's clearly like for camp and for effect. It's the, It's all the humanity that was earned leading up to that scene that makes that scene absolutely just just fucking you know like reagan did earlier twist your nuts right off well she's a 12 year old girl that's the thing that's the other thing girl all this that that we talked about this this entire film patrick it's a 12 year old girl doing that that's also what raises the level of intensity and and disturbing nature of that is that scene since it's a 12 year old girl if that's chris her mother is it still disturbing is it still you know horrific probably but it's a 12 year old yeah. girl doing that. It is. And, and, uh, Ellen Burstyn also her, her acting in that moment, the, the sheer terror on her face and the horror that, that she's going through felt viscerally real. Yeah. It really did. Like, and again, like that's, there's nigh a drop of blood in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but the realism in those scenes are what disturbs you that this feel in this, this scene just feels uh, just disturbingly real is, and more so not even Reagan's parts. It's, it's Chris's parts, Ellen Burstyn. What she's going through in that scene is just as terrifying and disturbing and dreadful as watching what Reagan is doing. You're watching her mother watch it and, and be victim to it too. You know what I mean? Reagan's fucking her up. And so you're just like, shit, like, I can't, I just can't believe they ever got away with putting that in a, in a mainstream movie. And it made $444 million. A lot of people saw that scene. Yeah. A lot. Unreal. Unreal. Um, to yeah. that, to that point, Patrick, our next category is a little different because we've talked about this when we've done other films on possession or exorcism and i know we haven't done a ton we just did the pope's exorcist a few weeks ago we've talked about a couple here and there the the exorcist is the gold standard it is the it is when you talk about possession and exorcism films all of them in some way shape or form are going to be compared to or graded next to the exorcist now to be fair that's an uh, that is an unfair criticism you can't stack up to the exorcist and you shouldn't try to you know, you can aspire no. for greatness and say, I want to create a film that would be an homage to The Exorcist, but you're not going to create The Exorcist. It's not going to be done, nor should you. I don't think anyone should try to duplicate that. 
But Patrick, what really, like, let's go through a few of the keys of, like, what makes this movie the gold standard compared to every other possession, every other exorcist, and even maybe every other horror film out there. I mean, listen, we've spent the last hour or so explaining why, but I think if I were to distill it all down, it is the emphasis on character is what changes this over all the other movies. And by the way, it's been kind of an exorcism summer for us kicking off with talk to me. Uh, we talked about talk to me, Pope's exorcists. Uh, there was a couple others that I can't remember. We reviewed a couple of other movies that basically had exorcism in them. And, and they're, they're all great. And they all that we've enjoyed, uh, we've enjoyed them all at least to some degree, but this movie first and foremost is a drama about people and what they're going through. And I feel like Pope's Exorcist is a great example of this. And also of uh, The Nun, which we've talked about, both both Nun movies had exorcism elements in them too, is that what the characters are actually going through is, is very glossed over. In some better than others. Some of those movies better than others. But what they're going through is kind of glossed over. In The Exorcist, you live through what they're going through. D- beside, beside The Exorcism itself. And once you get to the exorcism, all the things that they've been going through matter to the exorcism and they, they, they have weight to the exorcism, but, but some go on the extreme opposite end, like, uh, like it, father Burke in, um, in the nun had this whole like terrible exorcism gone wrong. That's like so background and so barely covered. It never factors in. Yeah. And so that's him. That to me, that's the biggest bullet point that's going to beat the exorcist is that it's absolutely character based. It's, it's 100%. It takes its time. It takes about 90 minutes, which is the, a, a, any good full length feature film to just get to know these characters before you terrify them, truly terrify them. That's one, another one, Damon, and you feel free to pontificate on this. The practical effects, the practical effects in this movie make all the difference. Now, I understand nowadays we want to go bigger and better and we have to keep eyes glued to the screen. So we got to try harder in all different aspects of it. But just the fact that everything that was in camera was really happening, it feels like it feels more real. And, and, and that sticks with you. It does. It does. And watching Reagan's transformation in particular is part of that. Like it's so visceral and feels so real um, and just watching her go from like a happy, well-adjusted child to becoming this tormented, tortured, both physically and mentally child. Hard to watch that scene where the the nanny pulls up the shirt and shows where she's saying, help me under the yeah. skin. Oh, my God. That's just that's horrific. And that's all practical effect. Like, that's so difficult to watch. And it's so well done. Um Another another thing I want to mention, and you know me, I'm story. I'm the story guy, right? Like, I need the story. I pay attention to the story. One thing I really enjoyed about The Exorcist, amongst all the other things we've already talked about, one thing I loved about how it happens in this film is the randomness of it all. We mm-hmm. obviously see at the beginning Father Marin has some experience with this demon Pazazu. We understand he's got some connection, but they're not... Father Marin is not the lead character in this movie. He's not even the secondary character. He's the guy you meet at the very beginning, and then he comes back at the end to do the exorcism. And even then, he doesn't know for sure what's going on until he gets in that room and realizes what he's dealing with. 
It's not Satan. It's not the devil. It's Pazazu, this real Assyrian demon, which is actually the name of a real Assyrian demon. That's that's the, that's that. But the random the randomness of this, because I think where a lot of exorcism and possession movies go wrong these days is that it's always about the situation and they got to over explain it. Right. Yeah. The nun. Yep. It takes place in an abbey where a where a creepy old guy tried to unleash hell from the basement and we don't demons, have enough time to explain yeah. all the explaining they did in the, the demons come out of the ground and blah blah blah. You look at um, and I, this isn't I'm not I'm not saying they're bad. I, I like these movies, but again, like the Conjuring movies, is because they move into the wrong house. You know, one thing I always loved about Paranormal Activity, the original Paranormal Activity, was the genuine twist where they said the demon was attached to the girl, not the house. It seemed like it was a haunted house story. We find out later on. Sorry, the movie's like 25 years old. I don't think I'm spoiling it at this point. But that was one of the cool things about that movie. Like, oh, the demon's attached to the girl. Like, it's following her. I was like, okay, that's a cool different twist. What I loved about The Exorcist was the randomness. They're not saying you moved into the townhouse and it was haunted and, you know, you moved in and, you know, it's the, the Amityville Horror House or anything like that. Like, they just, it just happens. There's no rhyme yeah. or reason to it. It's not because Reagan pulled out a witchcraft book and started chanting shit, and then she gets possessed. Well, they they do sort of imply that she was playing with the Ouija board, and she that was. Might have done but, it. That, but but again, they're not they're not making it overtly about them. They're not making it overtly. No, about, yeah, you're right. Like it's just it happens. Like it just happens to them, and they never over-explain that. Like they never get into the. They never get into the new, and I'm not saying you can't do it and do it well, because it has been done well in certain other films, but I feel like a lot of the exorcism possession films of this age do over-explain. Like, they're, the, randomness of, the randomness of what happens to Reagan and Chris is part of what makes this movie so scary, right? Because mm-hmm. there's no real rhyme. Like, when she comes home and she's like, look what I found, this Ouija board, and I'm talking to Captain Howdy, and the Ouija board moves by itself. Well, that's your first clue something's off. But even right. then, you're kind of like, I don't know why. And again, it's not like, you know, they don't. She didn't a, commit a sin. She didn't do something she, wrong. Well, And they also didn't like, they also, when they pulled out the Ouija board, they didn't do an investigation and find out that like witches lived there 300 years before. Right. Like, you know, they didn't go into, they didn't follow down that road. It was just, they yeah. happened to live here and it happens to them. And I like the randomness of it because... And the reason it works is something you already mentioned, the character study. We get to know Reagan. We get to go Chris. We get to know Father Karras. And we eventually get to know a little bit more about Father Marin. By the time the exorcism gets there and, and, and Reagan is just completely off her, off her axis and, and everything horrible is happening, you don't give a shit how it happened. You don't care where it came from. You don't care the origin of this demon. We're not trying to dig up its roots and all that. No, we're just trying to save this poor little girl who's been possessed by a demon. It's the simplicity of it, Patrick, that I think really Mm -hmm. separates this film, but the simplicity that also works. You know what I mean? Like there's a simplicity to it, but it also sells itself because the story and the characters are so strong. And then when you get to that final 20 minutes, when it really goes apeshit, they the orchestration of those scenes are so dark and also patient. There's a lot of patience in this movie. They don't rush anything. You know, they don't rush into like, again, I I know I, we say this all the time. Like sometimes films, like if you don't have an exciting incident, 20 minutes in the film, people just walk out. As we said, you couldn't make the exorcist in 2023. People would be like, this is boring. I don't get it. Like, this is not, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
you don't really get to anything truly crazy happening until like 45 minutes in when Reagan really starts exhibiting like truly bizarre behavior in the doctor's office. Even then that's already like 45 minutes in. Yeah, no. And you're right. And and what's another movie, Damon, that may take place. Oh, I don't know. Just one year later. That is about a completely random situation. Yeah. Only the other greatest horror film of all time, the Texas chainsaw massacre. Yeah. Same deal. It, they didn't do something wrong. They they stopped on the side of the road. They picked up a hitchhiker, and boy, they really shouldn't have done that. That was that was the greatest sin to them. But like nothing, it doesn't tie back. And all of a sudden, we find out that oh shit, and you know it, it happened to this. This one did this, and this and that. They they don't muddy it with anything. It's just like oops, I stepped on the wrong pile of dog shit, and now I'm going to pay for it. Yeah. And that's it. And by the way speak no evil which we talked about there's a randomness to that too there like there's something about just going like this is really going to suck for you because you didn't do anything wrong yeah and like it that that's a that's a whole that's like almost its own genre of horror the randomness of it i had a discussion with somebody on tiktok about that uh, uh is it scarier when there's a real purpose behind it or is there scarier when it's just it's at random and this is very much at random. Yeah. And that's, it sucks. It sucks for these characters and you feel for them. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a whole other factor that goes into why this, and I, and you do mention like some of these other possession movies, there's reasons, even talk to me, which you and I agree, fantastic movie and a great new way in to uh, possession but even talk to me like sort of implies that there might have been some choices in those people's past that affected that possession. They they get into that. It's actually a super strong part of that movie. It, they just happen to do it really well, where a lot of movies like maybe The Nun, sorry, and uh, and Pope's Exorcist, they, they're trying to make it all mean something like all, all, it all had to have way, a reason. We all way more heavy handed, way more heavy handed. Yeah, in those films. yeah. yeah. Yeah, so there, there's something to all of that. Yeah, it's, uh, like I said, it really is the gold standard. And um, like I said, you should never try to mimic The Exorcist, but you should you know, you no. use that as like your, your golden rule of how you can make a brilliant movie. And I think it really does, I think it comes down to two factors, character and, st- and character study and, uh, and, and a strong story. You know, like those mm-hmm. two things work really, really well. They work in concert in this film. And I know that sounds simple, but it's not simple. You know, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, and especially it's not an easy thing to balance because there's a lot of films that have a pretty good story, but the characters aren't great. Or there's films that actually have pretty good characters, but the story's not great. So it's not an easy thing to do and execute and pull off as well as you do this. Now, again, this is a rare example, but it is the gold standard. As we said, like it is, it is an incredible film it is an incredible character study. It is an incredible story. And obviously it's an incredible horror film. It's a lot of things rolled up into one. Sure shit is. So now, Patrick, part of the reason why we are doing this podcast right now, beyond the fact that The Exorcist is obviously a brilliant film and it's one of the greatest horror films ever made, is because... And it's a 50th anniversary, too. Yeah. uh, The Exorcist Believer is coming out relatively soon, and you and I are going to, of course, review that. David Gordon Green, who made Halloween 2018 and didn't make any sequels past that, Patrick. I don't know what happened. Nope, like just I that one brilliant it, movie, just, Halloween just 2018. Just that one 2018 was really good. I don't know what happened to two sequels. Um, he's making this movie. Now, before we get to the to the Exorcist Believer, 
I want to talk real briefly about the history of their their attempts to make Exorcist sequels and prequels in the past. Real quick. So after The Exorcist came out and won everything and got nominated for 10 Academy Awards, they went on to do The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Linda Blair returned, as did, uh, I believe, Jason Miller or, or Max, Max von Sydow came back. Max von Sydow came yeah. back in, like, other role as, as Father Marin, but, like, in flashback scenes and things like that. And the, the movie involves the Catholic Church sending a priest to investigate what happened to father Marin and it gets really batshit. Uh, I think at one point, uh, Reagan starts exhibiting, uh, telekinetic powers. She turns into like Firestarter. I don't know. It's a weird movie and it's like one of the worst reviewed sequels ever made. And then, so that killed the exorcist franchise. Then many, many, many years later comes the exorcist three, which was written and directed by William Peter Blatty, the original author and director or the original author of the exorcist. And now the author and director. And that one brings back detective Kinderman from the original exorcist, except this time played by George C. Scott. And he's investigating a series of murders that he believes were committed by a serial killer named the Gemini killer that died years earlier and you end up finding out that the Gemini killer is actually partially reconnected to Father Karras, who never actually died, and he's still possessed by Pazazu. And it's the Exodus Three is both good and bad. It's 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 a it's a pretty good film, and it's got one of the most iconic jump scares ever in yeah. that film. It's like top ten all time. Anyone who talks about jump scares, the Exodus Three has one in there that's like freaking amazing. It's a pretty good film, though. It's not great, but it's pretty. I just rewatched it fairly recently. It's pretty good. Yeah. Then they did two prequels. <laughs> there was Dominion, The Exorcist, and then The Exorcist, The Beginning. Now, here's where this gets really funky. Dominion, The Exorcist was made, and it got such... The studio was so unhappy with it, they basically scrapped it and remade a new movie with Rennie Harlan, of course, the great Rennie Harlan, who directed, I believe, was it um, Number on Elm Street 4? Am I remembering that number right? Yep. Um, yeah, that's right. And also he directed, didn't he, what else did Rennie Harlan direct? He, he directed, directed Die Hard, right? Die Hard, that's right. Yeah, that's Die Hard. Yeah. Great director. I love Rennie Harlan. He directed one called The Exorcist Beginning. Both films, this is the crazy part. Both films star Skellen Scars, Stellan Scar, Skellen, <laughs> Stellan, <laughs> Stellan Skarsgård, if I could say the name That's properly. Right. Stellan yeah. Skarsgård. As Father Marin, a younger Lancaster Marin. And it's so bizarre. They are two similar films, but they're also vastly different. The Exorcist Beginning is like more of a straight up like slasher almost horror film. And in it, there's one scene in particular that involves hyenas ripping a person apart. And it's CGI in its early 2000s. <laughs> and it's real, real bad real bad it is the most color by numbers exorcism movie you could have like it is like everything we just praised about the exorcist it's like the opposite now i will say there's some pretty freaky scenes and there are some scary moments in the exorcist beginning i actually don't hate that movie as much as most people do it's not good but it's like cheesy enough that i kind of like it dominion was kind of like an underappreciated film. And William Peter Blatty at one point said it was like, it was, it was, it was fun and it was well shot and blah, 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 but it bombed and it never did well. And they basically released, they only released it after the extras beginning came out and it's, it flopped and they're like, well, we might as well throw out the other movie that we made that we just, we just, we got done and never released. 
Uh, gotta be Patrick, the most bizarre filmmaking experience ever to make a film, basically say it sucks. We're going to reshoot a whole different film with kind of the same premise. That one sucks. So we're then going to release the original film and they don't even really release it. They just kind of like drop it out there. Like, Hey, here's yeah, this it's, other like, it's one. just available one day. <laughs> So my point being here, Patrick, we now have had, so that's one, two, three, four. And then they also did the Exorcist TV show for two seasons, mm-hmm. which actually starred Gina Davis as an adult Reagan, which is okay. That's that's some interesting casting. I love Gina Davis. She's great. But I was like, what I the do. hell? I never saw the show. Can't judge it. Have no idea. I, I, I've heard it's good. I heard people that liked it, but I have no idea if it is or not. Um. My point being getting back around to the Exodus Believer, because Patrick, we got to talk about what we need out of this film, because the track record of the Exorcist prequels and sequels have not been good. The best of the bunch, the one that you have seen and I have seen is the Exorcist three. And I would say Mm -hmm. it's pretty good. It's not great. I'm not going to sit here and bang the drum and say it's like amazing and it holds up to the original. It doesn't. It's pretty good, though. I like it. Fair? Yeah. Would you- oh yeah. I like, oh yeah. I, I like exorcist three for sure. And, and I, I, it's the one I actually kind of grew up with. It was the one I watched in full first. I watched it before I watched the exorcist. I know that yeah. for sure. And uh, yeah, it always, it always kind of had a special place in my heart. And then when I actually revisited it, I think just last year, basically I was like, yeah, this movie's still good. This is yeah, good. good for what it is. Yeah. Pretty good. It's pretty good. But otherwise it's been a rough run for exorcist sequels <laughs> and prequels. So Patrick, yeah. what like what do, what are we hoping for with the Exorcist Believer? Because it's a really weird bar to set for a film. Because this is ignoring every other movie. This is very much doing what Halloween twenty eighteen did, where they're just sequelizing the original Exorcist, and they're not really sequelizing it because we know Ellen Burstyn's character, Chris McNeil, comes back. That's in the trailer, and we haven't seen it, so I couldn't spoil anything for you if I wanted to. Um, yeah. we saw the trailer, we did the reaction here on the podcast. So we know she's in the movie. She comes back in some form or fashion as almost like a consultant. Right. But it's really a okay. direct sequel to the original meaning. Like they're not saying like, you know, Reagan went on to become the heretic and Kinderman fought the Gemini killer. Like they're basically saying this is a direct sequel to the original exorcist. What do we want out of this movie? What do we need out of this movie? I think step one is that don't try to be the exorcist and uh and and you know listen we're talking about david gordon green we ha- we have case study for him we have halloween 2018 the only halloween movie he's ever made exactly. um fantastic movie that just steps right into a new world i think halloween 2018 is great because it while it really 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 respects the original halloween it is its own story about the aftermath of all of that stuff. Now, it doesn't seem like, based on the trailer, that the Exorcism Believer is going to be that, but it has one quality that I think is going to be similar to uh, the Exorcism, and that is the randomness of it. It seems like this possession is going to choose these two girls at random, but there does seem to be a reason. I don't know if I don't know if they uh, the second trailer seemed to uh, imply there might be a reason that Chris is involved again. You know, maybe, maybe this, this, this devil's not finished with what it started with Chris. Be careful, tread lightly there. But what it can do that the original exorcist did without ever having to pretend to be it is it. I really hope that the believer goes hard. 
what what it can't it can't be the original Exodus with the with the character study and the and the and the ninety minutes of Corey. Um, I, I'm sorry, I, I didn't say that, did I? That's it's like saying a demon's name. You're not supposed to do that. Um, it, it can't it can't be that version of the Exorcist. It won't be. There's no chance. So let it shake audiences to their core. I want The Exorcist Believer to be the scariest movie that I see this year. I've seen a I've seen a lot of horror this year. Most of it we're not talking about on the show. Truth be told. Even though we do we do 52 weeks a year, most of the horror, new horror that I've seen this year has not tried to push the envelope. Not yet, anyway. We're, we still got a couple months to go. So I want Believer to be the scariest movie that I see this year. I want it to go absolutely hard in the paint. And I want it to disturb the way I'm sure audiences in 1973 were disturbed. So for me, Patrick, what I really want, two things in particular, and obviously number one for me, as always, is story. I need it to be a strong story. I need them to give me a premise that actually works. Now, it seems like, as you said, the the general premise seems like it is based upon the randomness. These two girls go into the woods. They disappear for a few days. They come back and something's different about them. And obviously we know they're possessed. That's not a spoiler because it's in the trailer. Um. I enjoy the dynamic of it being two girls, not just one, because you feel Mm -hmm. like with one, you kind of would be going into like that same reconditioning of the exorcist a little bit. Like, you know, you're just telling the same story over again. You're kind of doing a little bit of like Star Wars Force Awakens, where you're just like telling the same movie over again, just in a new format. Um, Right. So that's kind of a twist that I enjoyed the two girls. I also enjoy the fact that they're bringing back Chris McNeil. They're bringing back, you know, the mother, the woman who dealt with this all these years, or 50 years ago, she dealt with this with her own daughter. Um, we don't know how Reagan ties into this. We know that they mention her name in one of the trailers. But we have no idea how, what happened to Reagan. I am infant. That's like, to me, like, I hope that they do it well, that like Reagan, the way Reagan plays back into it, it makes sense. Like, that would be one of my biggest requests. Yeah. Like, it makes sense. They don't just have some hokey, stupid thing. Like, oh, yeah, she got hit by a train. Like, what? Like, you know, like make it make sense why she's either in or not in this movie. We haven't seen her in the trailers. We don't know. Linda Blair could absolutely pop up in this movie. We have no idea. Story is number one for me, Patrick. Give me reason to get involved with the story because... It can't the randomness of these girls getting possessed, but then make it compelling like they did again. I don't I don't want them to try to be the exorcist. I certainly don't want them to try that because they're not going to do it. And then it's going to pale in comparison. One of the great things that David Gordon Green did with the 2018 Halloween, as you mentioned, is he paid homage to the original, but then he did his own thing. That's what I want from this film. Pay homage to the original, but then do your own thing. And then I agree with you 110%. You cannot make a sanitized version of this film to where I'm not saying you need to have the crucifix scene all over again. No, I'm just saying you 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 need to be willing to go to links that are going to disturb people in this film. You cannot have a, a, a you cannot have a sanitary version of this film because Part of what made The Exorcist so hardcore was how disturbing it was. And all. And again, yes, I know the crucifix scene, but in general, the terror that little girl goes through is part of we both talked. You talked about it like if you were scared for her. You were scared. Is she going to survive? Yeah. I was scared because I was like, this little girl's scary as fuck. Um, 
make sure you're having that element in there. And, and, and like I said, pay homage, but also try to make yourself an original story. So it's, I know it's a weird balancing act, but it has been done. And he, and David Gordon Green to his credit did it very well in 2018. I had one major problem with that movie, but even that didn't ruin it for me. I still really enjoyed 2018's Halloween. It was a great follow-up and a great way. If you're going to do a direct sequel to 1977, that to me was almost the best way you could have done it. Again, I have one flaw. I'm not going to get into it, but that like that, that was the, that movie was about as good as you could do it. I understand it's going to be hard to do the exorcist and it does. I'll be honest, Patrick, it does scare me that they're already setting this up as a, as a trilogy. That scares me yeah, because I don't like, like, that. yeah, I'm kind of like, man, really? Like we're already setting the stage for a trilogy. Do we know where we're going? Cause it really didn't feel like they knew where they were going in the Halloween movies, even though I only accept 2018 as the only one. Um, there was more than re- 2018. I didn't know it that. Re- but in all honesty, it really did feel like they were just kind of like making shit up as they went along in those movies. Um, I hope if they're doing a trilogy for the exorcist believer that they really do have a fully mapped out, truly realized idea where this story is going because if it's just like we get to the end of this one and they throw slapstick something in there to make it go into a sequel i'm gonna be pretty disappointed to be honest with you so that scares me a little bit because they're already telling us it's going to be a trilogy and i would say to that point like if if this is indeed a trilogy and they're going gung-ho with say probably will because that's just it's you make money these days doing that then end the the reagan and chris saga with this movie with believer end it end their saga which is what halloween 2018 should have done i just watched it again it's really good and at the end of it uh laurie strode's story should have been done there was nothing in kills or halloween ends that made me go wow i'm really glad we kept going with that end this story in believer end reagan's story end chris's story end father karis's story in believer and and then if you're going to go in these two sequels make it be about the families that got affected now because and one other thing in this trailer the believer trailer and the second trailer was there is an implication that they're going to have to make a choice to save one of these kids and let's just say that 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 indeed is how it plays out well, there's going to be fallout from that. Yeah. So end end the old Exorcist story and start a new one. If we're doing if we're doing a trilogy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I have, I don't have unrealistic expectations because just being honest, like Halloween Kills and Halloween Ends exist out there, and I know how jaded I was after watching those two films, particularly Halloween Ends. So I'm going in with a little different, like a little different attitude for this one, but I still have high hopes because. The trailers have looked great. And I do know that David Gordon Green is capable of making a really good horror film. Like he is absolutely capable of it. It's yeah. not like he didn't do that. Um, he did it really well once he did it. Okay. Another time. And then he blew it the third time. Um, <laughs> and so I know he ha- I know he's capable of it. So it's like, I'm just holding out hope that it's a suitable follow-up it doesn't need to be amazing it doesn't need to be an academy award-winning film it doesn't need to be the best horror film of the year it just needs to be adequate to where when i leave the theater after i watched i was like you know what that was a pretty good exorcist movie and i know that sounds like i'm setting the bar awfully low (laughs) but the reason i'm saying that patrick is because the exorcist sets an impossibly high bar yeah you know what i mean like i can't i can't go into this movie thinking it better hold up to the exorcist i can tell you right now it's not going to 
Right. Th- th- that's not going to happen. But as long as I can walk out and be like, you know what? That was a pretty that was a pretty good follow up to The Exorcist. They did a pretty admirable job, like giving that a sequel, like a legitimate, you know, all these years later sequel. Okay, cool. That's all I want. And I know that sounds like, man, you're really not. You're not. Your expectations are super low. <laughs> Honestly, they're that's not. That's, a good actu- thing. that's actually high expectations because. Again, The Exorcist is on a pedestal that can't be. It's like, and I know we mentioned earlier about like the Silence of the Lambs set the bar high. I rewatched Red Dragon more recently, the the, the newer version of Red Dragon, the one that um, uh, suck ass Brett, uh, what's his name, Brett Ratner, um, yeah. Brett Ratner made. Uh, he's a piece of shit. But the movie <laughs> itself, I rewatched it fairly recently, and it's not like I remember like watching it originally, like this is not a great movie. And I remember thinking because I compared it to Silence of the Lambs, watching it years later, I was like, it's not bad. Like Edward Norton's pretty good in it. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's pretty good. My biggest problem, of course, is I think is uh, is uh, Ray Fiennes. I don't think he makes a convincing killer in that movie. But it's good to see Anthony Hopkins back and Harvey Keitel's great. And, like it's not bad. It's not a great. It's not an amazing movie, but it's a pretty decent like prequel to to Silence of the Lambs. Um, Hannibal is a whole other story. Um, I think that's how I have to judge this film. I can't go in thinking it's going to be The Exorcist. I have to come in thinking, just be a pretty good follow-up. And if it's that, I'll be happy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. It's actually good to kind of have expectations like that. I've said it a few times on this podcast. Like, if you pre-frame yourself to say, this is what this movie owes me. Yeah. The movie doesn't owe you shit. (laughs) The movie doesn't owe anybody anything. But if it, you know, like if you just come in and go, all right, what do you got for me this time? Yeah. And and th- that sounds like a low bar, yeah. but you know that's that. I think that's that's a better way to approach it, so you don't get let down. Well, it is a because so a many hard, people it, get let down. It's a hard. It is a it, it is a hard line to walk when you're dealing with existing IP. When you're dealing with ex- existing intellectual property, it's like when you know the new Star Wars movies came out. They had an impossibly high bar to live up yeah. to. Uh, because the prequels were not super well received, but then everyone holds the gold standard to the original trilogy. And it's like, it's hard to live up to that. And those films tried overly hard to try to do that and failed miserably in my opinion, for the most part. Um, and we're all guilty of it. You know, we're all guilty of it. Like when you like Texas chainsaw massacre, when there's a new one coming out, I know it's never going to be as good as the original, (laughs) but I still expect, I still expect some element to like, you know, pay off and i it is it's it's a weird line to walk when you're dealing with an existing film and you're trying to reboot it or sequelize it it can be done and it's been done well halloween 2018 is a golden example of that um i'm trying to think of other versions of this where like they've done and not just in horror but in general like it can be done and it has been done but you can't constantly compare yourself to the original or you're never going to live up to it because it's just, it's an impossible bar to, it's an impossible, it's an impossible height that you can't reach. hundred percent. All right, Patrick, last category as always. And I think I know what the answer is to this. When we talk about the original exorcist, is it scary? Patrick, fuck yes. This movie's scary. This movie is dread filled. This movie is uncomfortable. This movie is scary. This movie is terrifying. This movie is disturbing. This, we talk about layers. This film is layered with scare. Like there's just horror throughout this film in like 20 different ways. So yeah, that's a, it's almost dumb that we're asking this question today, Patrick. Is the exorcist scary? Fuck yes, it's scary. 
Damon, it's not scary. <laughs> no, okay. Uh, listen, but the, here's the truth. Did it scare me? No, it didn't scare me. Is it full of dread? It's it's like chock full of dread. I mean, it's all it is is dread. It's it's wall to wall dread, which doesn't need to scare you. It needs to unsettle you. And the exorcist very much unsettles you. And then at one point while I was watching it, I pretty much just put myself in the in the seat of a moviegoer in 1973. That's the scariest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> and you'll ever see. Like for sure. Like it probably scarred some people that were not ready for some shit like that. Like I just I I, I look all up and down the, the the history of theater going, of of going to see going to see a movie at a movie theater on that scale. Because you can, you know, you can People have seen Terrifier 2 and stuff like that, but this was a blockbuster movie. People walked into that theater, not quite sure what they were going to get, and they came out going, there's things I can never unsee. Again, like we were talking about with Speak No Evil. Imagine mm-hmm. Speak No Evil today made $500 million at the box office, and there'd be a lot of people still very upset that they saw it. That is The Exorcist. It is brilliant. It still holds up. It's a great film. Highly recommend. I mean, obviously at this point, I assume you've probably seen it if you sat through this entire podcast, but for some reason, if you haven't, go check it out. As I mentioned early on, they just released the 4K version of The Exorcist. If you are a physical media collector, I would highly recommend going out and picking it up. It is well worth your money. There's also a re-release coming into theaters, I believe, on October 4th, which is like two days before uh, The Exorcist Believer drops in theaters. They are dropping The Exorcist for like a one-night-only event in theaters october 1st october 1st sorry okay so october 1st they're doing a one night only the exorcist back in theaters if you've never seen i actually did see it in the theater when they did the theater the uh, director's cut like 20 years ago i saw it in the theater um go see it it is so good in the theater highly especially if you're going to see the exorcist believer go see the original in the theater and then go see the believer because um it it, it's an incredible have you seen have you seen it in the theater no, I've never seen it, and I, and I won't be able to see it on the October 1st. I can't do it. I can't. I, 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 I'm, my schedule's not going to work for it. It sucks. Oh, man, you should. It would be so good. I, like I said, I was lucky enough to when they re-released it with the director's cut, I got to see it in the theater. So it is, yeah, it's 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 a brilliant, it's such a brilliant film. So that is our podcast for The Exorcist. Uh, let the power of Christ compel you, because this this film will <laughs> fuck you up. Uh Folks, we appreciate everyone that tunes into the show each and every week. As you know, we will have a lot more coming in October because it is Halloween month, and that is Horror Movie Month here on the mm. podcast. We've got a lot of movies to review, so stay tuned for that. Obviously, we appreciate everyone tuning in. Check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and, of course, over on our YouTube channels. you got questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review, hit us up on email anytime. You can find us at rot living dead at gmail.com that's rot living dead at gmail.com you can also find us on social media just search rewind of the living dead on facebook twitter and instagram or x or whatever the fuck elon's calling it these days uh rewind of the living dead you can find us on all those places you can also send us questions or as i said movies you'd like us to review and you can also find us on our own personal social media channels i am at damon martin and you are at director patrick And Patrick, I couldn't think of a better way to go out this week than to pay homage to one of the greatest soundtracks in horror history, Tubular Bells from The Exorcist. Thanks so much for tuning in to Rewind of the Living Dead. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Peace.
Recording stopped.